This show is part of the RetroZap.com podcast network. You will never find the more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. Hello, and welcome to Beltway Banthas, a Star Wars podcast live from the hive of scum and villainy in our very own galaxy, Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Stephen Kent, and I couldn't be joined this evening by my co-host, Suara, but the good news is that uh, this week's episode was actually already recorded. Last year, we got connected with Tamara Keith, the White House correspondent for NPR, and we had her on the show to talk about her love of Star Wars. It was a really great chat, and that's in the backlog, something that you should check out, and you can find that in the show notes. Um, since then, we have had a huge longing to return to the sacred broadcasting halls of NPR and chat again. And that actually finally came about uh, this past week, and we sat down with both Tamara and Scott Detrow. You probably know him from the NPR Politics Podcast. And this was just a true joy to record. First, y'all, and if you are an NPR politics listener, you know uh, Sam Sanders and the, and the shtick of y'all, so it's going to get even worse here. Um, I come from North Carolina, so that's just, uh, just shorthand, y'all, so I did it again. Anyways, I love the NPR politics podcast. It is the best and most timely and, and measured and, and fact-based podcast that I download every few days. It is not fake news. So talking to the team... There was just this just incredible high. I just I had such a blast doing it, and Suara did as well. Um, but being inside NPR in DC in a studio, NPR logos all around, just kind of the buzz of that newsroom in the morning when everything is getting going, it's just quite an experience. So I just want to thank NPR's team, Hugo, Tamara, Scott, and everyone else who was involved with making this little mashup happen. Um, we recognize just how much of a privilege it is to be there. So thank you so much. Um, now, if you are new to the show, we are happy, happy, happy to have you with us. Beltway Banthas is a bi-weekly Star Wars and politics podcast. That's every other week. And we are always tackling the intersection of Star Wars and politics. So that's digging into, you know, what exactly is the, uh, the taxation of trade routes? What does that even mean? What are the politics of the Republic? What are the politics and philosophies of the Empire? What on earth is the First Order? And it's also talking about you know, Princess Leia's presence at the Women's March this past, this past month. Uh, why is the left calling itself the Resistance? Why does Steve Bannon have a crush on Darth Vader? And who loves Star Wars more? Ted Cruz or Cass Sunstein. This is just kind of all par for the course here on Beltway Banthas. Um, we've talked about a bunch of topics so far, and we're really just getting started. So if you want to look through that backlog and find an episode that's just right for you, we definitely recommend you do. If you are a political junkie who likes a side of Star Wars, um, you know, or Star Wars junkie who is open to a little bit of politics with that, this is the show for you. And you can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and you can also check us out on RetroZap.com. Now, I recognize at this point I am just getting in your way to this conversation with the NPR politics team. So without further ado, here's Tamara Keith and then followed by Scott Detrow. Tamara, welcome to the show. Hello. It is so nice to have you back. It's good to be back. 
We talked last time you were here, um, folks, you know, this is an episode that's in the backlog, and you should definitely go check it out. We kind of dig right into Tamara Keith's fandom of Star Wars a little bit. But what we were going to talk about today was uh, kind of more of her in-depth view on Rogue One. And Tamara, like, in our last conversation, you had expressed a little bit of reluctance to be excited about Rogue One, a Star Wars story. It is now February. Have you seen the movie, and did you like it? I saw it the first night it came out. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> because, like, I, you know, to quote Star Trek, resistance is futile. Um, <laughs> I know. That's not why I should be doing that. Was honestly. this a Thursday night viewing or a Friday no, night? No, I did Friday night. I okay. did Friday night. So I guess I didn't With... go at midnight because I'm old. Um, it's all right. That's not even a thing anymore. I show up. I show up for the midnight showing, and they've got seatings going on for eight p.m. and seven p.m. Yeah. Thursday night. And I was like, "Oh, well, surely they're filled up and sold out. I won't be able to get in that one." They're like, "Oh no, there's like four people in there. Do you want to just go on in?" Yeah. And I was like, "What? What? That was crazy." Yeah, we were originally going to see it at ten p.m., but we saw it at seven p.m. when we arrived at the theater early, anticipating a long line, but there was nothing. It it's was not easy. even a thing anymore. Well, you know the thing with movie theaters now is you reserve your seats in advance, and there's really no true. There's no drama. There's no complication. You just go. You sit. It's very civilized. Convenience has kind of bummed me out in this regard because yeah. I, li- I liked the uh, the organized chaos of the old way. And the lines and the whole thing. Yeah. No more. Uh, so I saw it, yeah, that first Friday night. And I don't know, like halfway through it, I had a thought to myself where I was like, maybe there is such a thing as too much Star Wars. Hmm. Uh-oh. I know, right? Uh-oh. Where's and- this going? It all it all resolved itself by uh-huh. the end. But there was just a moment where I was like, this doesn't have the whimsy. And it just has sort of the feel of Star Wars, sort of, but it didn't. And I was like, okay, maybe there is such a thing as too much. And then it got better. I mean, like, what I What was, know, like, the moment that kind of had you alarmed? I, You know, I think it was somewhere. I'm trying to think of where it was. Or gullet. <laughs> the Borgolet will get it from you. I I'm trying to think of where it was. It it was you know I I think it was uh on the the planet uh now I can't remember the name of the planet desert planet was it yeah, the rain planet Jetta. it was on the desert yeah, it was planet Jetta. Yeah. yeah I just felt like no maybe it was like okay are we going to another planet okay we're going to another oh, planet yeah. like we're on a march through planets that was really strange like for any star wars movie um hopping around from planet to planet like that with that much speed and also putting a little subtitle at the bottom corner yeah it was very um like guardians of the galaxy and it was it was much more disconnected from knowing a planet like you have in past star wars movies we're like oh, i kind of know what this is yeah they were jumping to no name backwater planets we've never heard of and i think they kind of expected that of people because they had to put subtitles down on some of the planets names right it was very odd uh, it didn't feel right it did not feel like a star wars movie initially yeah and i think that may- and maybe that was what it was is it just didn't there, there was something that didn't feel right ultimately though i think it it saved itself uh, and I was thinking about it for days afterwards. So that's a sign of a movie that that's was good. good. Days and days and days. Days, yeah. What was uh, something that you liked and disliked in Rogue One? I think my main complaint with Rogue One was there wasn't enough character development. Mm-hmm. I, you know, like, it just, it just, I just felt like I wasn't attached really to any of them. Um, and... And then I guess, you know, for good reason, 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They spoiler ripped, they alert. They ripped that mandate right off. <laughs> yeah. But there, there was just this sense of like, I, I don't, I don't know that I care about these people. Like, I, they didn't make me love them. Comparatively speaking, what were so, who were some characters you did like, and who were some characters you might have really disliked? Um, well, you know, I really liked uh, Jen. Um, Jen. Jen. Yeah. Jen. Yeah. I like Jen. 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 Or so. Yeah. Jen. 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 Yeah. Jen. Like a gin and tonic. Yeah. Like. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Let's not talk about that. Uh, and Diego Luna, yeah. Dreamboat, cutie, but. <laughs> I, I like super cute, but I didn't I didn't feel invested in him. Mm-hmm. Like he was he was a little dark. We could tell he had a dark side, but it took too long to figure out where that came from and and I never felt like I truly understood what his deal was. And maybe, you know, if yeah. I had read all of the books and all of that, I would have understood more about him, but just coming in cold, here I am to see a movie. He's a rogue with an attitude problem. What? Like, with someone like Han Solo, you could get that, you know, based on the demeanor, based on some of the yeah. tidbits of dialogue. But with uh, Cassian Andor, it was more like you had to have this background story to it. Um, we've done some research, and I don't know if you remember this from the prequels, but he was a separatist, actually, at first, way back when. He and his family were separatists, and then uh. that transferred into being part of the Rebel Alliance. But to expect a more general movie audience to know that seems a bit much. Yeah, and you know, I've seen the prequels recently. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've yeah, but that didn't I didn't that didn't carry with me. Yeah. Um the thing that I loved about the movie was the technology. Oh yeah. Um you mean the tech the characters yeah, tar- were using? Yeah, well like no, like Tarkin. Okay. Um and I went with a friend who is a big Star Wars fan and after it was over I was like, "Oh my gosh, he was a computer the whole time." And my friend was like, "Really?" I'm like, yeah, he's dead. That guy is dead. dead. <laughs> um, and I have this really weird Star Wars poster at my house that um, is from the original movie, and it was meant to be taken to movie theaters and cut up into six pieces. And so it has it has Chewbacca and Han Solo, and it doesn't have Darth Vader. It has Tarkin. Mm. Because either somebody screwed up making a poster... <laughs> Or initially, Tarkin was this scary, evil dude. This was a 1977 poster. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that they they probably didn't know how big of a phenomenon Darth Vader was going to be at that time, and there also was not a guaranteed sequel at that time either. Right. Darth Vader was just a guy in a metal suit who spun off into space after Han Solo shot him. So, like, that was kind of it. He was uh, their insurance for a sequel. And Peter yes. Cushing. Peter Cushing was the big money actor who who brought some credibility to the movie. Right. And this poster was made for putting up in movie theaters yeah. before before the movie ever came out. You know, that, that makes a lot of sense from a marketing standpoint. He's a known commodity. People see that and they go, Okay, this guy's a serious guy. I will go see this silly Star Wars movie. Right. And and so like this guy is up on the wall in my TV room at home and to then see him look the same, uh-huh. to come to life looking the same as the guy on my poster from 1977 was kind of remarkable. What I noticed with those scenes and uh, like putting aside like kind of every film and tech nerds like criticisms of little little subtle details about the character, I couldn't pay attention to the scene when it was happening. Mm. When I saw this guy on screen who's been long dead, I was so wrapped up in looking at every line on his face, every movement of the mouth, 
every little thing. And then the scene was over, and I went, what did he say? <laughs> like, was there, was there a conversation here? Scott Detrow. Hey. Welcome. Sorry to be late. No worries at all, especially on a Everybody Monday Everybody runs on different time in D.C. <laughs> Okay, Please. sorry, we're back. Yeah, so Scott Detrow has joined us from the NPR politics team. Welcome, Scott. Great to be here. We were just talking about Tarkin mm-hmm. uh, and Peter Cushing's revival in Rogue One. Yeah. How that made you feel? What did you think? And and did you buy it? And did it add to the movie for you? Um, I didn't have a major problem with it. And I know, I think I'm in the minority in that. Uh, I thought it was kind of cool. Um. I feel like as there were some awkward moments with the technology, but I feel like that's come a long way since like I think they they tried to do that in the Sopranos like 15 years ago or yeah. so with the oh, character wow. who had died. It didn't work so well, but I thought it was cool and I kind of liked um, I guess I would feel differently if this became like the norm and we just had dead actors in movies yeah. all the time. But mm-hmm. I, I, I kind of like the continuity to the original movies with that. I think I thought that added to the like adding context to the uh, the original. So the continuity thing is big. Like, it actually makes it feel like this is all part of one narrative, and yeah. that's okay. Yeah. And, and that's it... what saved it for me. Yeah. By the time we got to the end, where I was like, oh, that's why there's a flaw in the Death Star. <laughs> that was, for me, probably the best aspect of the movie. Yeah. I mean, they, they solved that fan argument that's been going on for years, and they made it sabotage. Though I be did better? see, um, right before Rogue One came out, and I guess kind of, settled this question in the other way there was this funny youtube video i saw that was like made by the engineer of the death star being yeah. like it's an exhaust port there's supposed to be a hole like what's the problem here like the problems with you yeah it was, <laughs> it was dork- pretty funny yeah it was a dorkly video it's yeah. hilarious yeah. But it's like there's a lot of heat coming off Come on. <laughs> you can't account for magic space wizards <laughs> <laughs> well we were just asking tamara like what was one thing that she liked and disliked about the film you're saying you liked tarkin yeah. And was the dislike the the not getting time to know the characters? Yeah, it was the lack of character development mm. and the planet hopping, planet the hopping. pointless planet hopping. Scott, I mean, I guess there was you? a point to it, but so, <laughs> I was like pretty ambivalent about it going in to the point where I like took two weeks to see it, which Tamara was like daily texting, like, "What's wrong with you? See this movie? Like, I need, I need to talk." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I, I I finally saw it over the holidays, and um. I guess there were some things I didn't love. I thought the whole, uh, I'm blanking on his name so much, both the actor and the right. Yeah, just, yeah. Eh, that, that whole side plot felt kind of pointless. But I guess, to me, I loved the ending so much. Mm-hmm. And I was like deeply moved by the ending in a way that surprised me. And I feel like one reason is that not just in Star Wars, but in so many movies, like, the main character has to make a sacrifice. But it's always, like, a cheap sacrifice. It's not a real sacrifice. It seems like a sacrifice, and then he's okay in the end. And I thought it was so powerful and cool that they just killed all the characters. And it was a real... You felt the loss. You felt the sacrifice that was made for, for the rest of the plot to take off. And you felt like these people gave up something that they cared about. And it mattered. And I, that was just, like, really moving. To that, me. that speaks to one of my favorite aspects of this movie because they actually did cash the check on your, your emotional buy-in yeah. for some of these characters. If you can kill them off, then that makes that movie final. Like, that's the last time you're going to see them on screen. It makes, it makes it stronger. My biggest fear was that they were going to take characters who we'd never heard of before 
and then try to throw them into a book or comic in in the middle of the, the yeah. Galactic Civil War and say, oh, some of them survived, and right. they're actually they're actually crucial to the rebellion later on down the road. No, and here's their they're toys. All they're yeah. all dead. Yeah. <laughs> um, that moment where where Bodhi Rook um, is on on the shuttle. And the grenade just gets tossed in. Yeah. And you have that kind of saving Private Ryan moment of just like the grenade comes in. They go, oh, oh, no. <laughs> yeah. And they actually killed him. Yeah. It was unbelievable. And unbelievable. That, that final, it isn't the final scene, but they're like on the planet and they're on the beach and the Death Star fallout is coming toward them. That image reminds me of, I feel like I've seen a movie that was black and white and sort of apocalyptic in some way. And there's a couple on a beach and the nuclear Holocaust happens. And, and it's a really powerful image and one that I wish I could remember the movie, but the image has stuck with me forever. And then to see that same image, basically it, it might on just the be a recent stress dream. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's a stress dream that's been with me since college. <laughs> Just out of curiosity, um, what do you think of the political or geopolitical parallels that you saw in Rogue One? I think that one thing that Star Wars has done very well, and, and one reason why it's so powerful and gets to people, is that it layers on top of mythology and real world kind of, I guess like World War II almost feels like a mythology in terms of just like the way that we as a society view it. Um, I feel like it always kind of like gives you either subtle winks or not so subtle winks at all about things that we can tap into right away and, and kind of have feelings about. It. And that's why the Death Star was always so powerful. And that's why seeing that kind of big cloud was so powerful. And I feel like you know what we're talking about in that way that, that you can connect it to, to kind of either historical events or kind of other mythologies that you know about. With, I mean, you're kind of speaking to like how Star Wars is really politically and culturally malleable. malleable. Yeah. You can approach yeah. it and you can just see sorts of all things. Yeah. And the prequels were a lot of hard winks towards yeah. the politics of the time and mm -hmm. things that George Lucas felt pretty strongly. Yeah. This is the first movie that is a, a Disney property. Yeah. It does not have that guiding hand of George Lucas. Um, so this is kind of a question to both of you. But, you know, do you think that the political context of Rogue One kind of happened in a vacuum because this story was a long time coming. They've been working on this for a few years. Or do you think that there was something inherently political and direct about the movie? I think it's hard to separate those two because especially if you live in a political world like us and think about it all the time, I feel like I see current politics in every movie I see now. Like I just saw The Founder about uh, McDonald's, which is oh, yeah. a different yeah. genre of movie. Really good movie. Michael Keaton's a good movie. And I was like, man, there's so much Donald Trump like commentary in here. And then it's yeah. like, wait a second. This movie was written like years I gotta ago. Step like, back. This is not. Yeah. Like yeah, you are was, putting this on it yourself. I was seeing a lot of politics in Zootopia. <laughs> Well, there was a that lot was, of politics. That was, that was true. Political. That yeah. was pretty true. But I, I feel like, like... Wait, I thought I was going to an animated movie with kids. <laughs> but no, so many people feel that way. And they and yeah. when people who are constantly engaged in politics and thinking about this stuff then tell them about like the political messages of Zootopia, people feel really attacked. Yeah. I mean, they're like, I just talked my kid to see this movie. What do you mean it's about uh, police violence and minority communities? <laughs> like, But you go, no, it is. It's, it's an allegory. It's like, undeniably <laughs> so. Yeah. I feel like the last year kind of aged the prequels better in a way in terms of like we have we have trashed their 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 you know heavy-handed politics and kind of unsustainable political systems before mm -hmm. but um 
like a lot of Democratic friends were texting me like quotes from the prequels, watching various like events, like Donald Trump accepting the nomination. Like three different Democratic friends were like, "So this is how democracy dies." You know, I was like, oh, "We we had a, a ticker. Uh, we we were counting on Twitter every time it was used and yeah. drawing up a tally <laughs> during the uh, election to, de- to describe the election night. Yeah. Wow, the election night results." <laughs> I was just eating Sour Patch Kids and watching people cry at Hillary headquarters. No, we were, I we were not have time it to keep like, It felt like we were on the Death Star and it was being evacuated, though, the way people were just, like, streaming out of the Devon oh. Center. It, yes. it felt that way. Oh, yeah, Scott, Scott and I were both there eating Sour Patch Kids. We had to ration them because, yeah. because there were two of us in just one small bag. And it was a big, metallic, and bright thing. It felt yes. like we were in the loading dock a little bit. So some of the context of this question about the politics of Rogue One has to go down uh, in, into a divide between the people who are making the movie. So you had Bob Iger, CEO mm-hmm. of Disney, saying there is nothing inherently political about this movie. It does not have a political message. And then you had uh, writers of Rogue One stepping out on Twitter, really causing a huge dust storm yeah. uh, with their comments about the Empire being a white supremacist organization and, and saying that the Rebellion was a multicultural group led by a woman. Um, <laughs> so... Clearly, everybody even involved in the movie kind of thinks they were making something that maybe they weren't. You know, Tamara, did you think that this movie was supposed to be political, or do you think that it is always just a read-in? I think that everything is political in some way, and that, you know, like, for instance, casting choices. Um, You know, it was a very diverse cast of people, um, which... Which the original clearly wasn't. Was not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and and that is a choice that was made. Um, I think a great choice. I, I really enjoyed seeing a, a diversity of people and, and sort of their... It, it was just really cool. Um, but uh, that can be taken as a political choice. Mm-hmm. But then again, like, we've changed a lot as a society. And... and Hollywood is motivated by a lot of things, including money. And, I mean, if you look at sitcoms, they used to be basically all white or there'd be, like, an African-American sitcom. And now you look at a show like Supercenter, just to throw one out there, and everybody's in that show. It looks like America. Um, And so I wonder if our entertainment is just moving closer to looking more like America in a way that obviously they they believe that that is profitable or they wouldn't do it yeah. um Absolutely. and so this you know that that you can have action figures that look like lots of different kids is a very good thing though that's still like an ongoing problem like the uh the fact that like Again, I'm hopping out of our the, our, our favorite film franchise to talk about other, but Hop like away. with the the Avengers it, toy issue, the fact that like Black Widow toys are impossible to find, even though she's a main character in the movie. And there was there's that one oh, thing yeah. was it Civil War? One of the last few movies, there was like a key scene where she's on a motorcycle and it's like a real badass, and then uh-huh. they sold a toy on the motorcycle, but with Captain America instead, they like swapped out for a oh, dude, yeah, you know. So like, I think there are what? still especially well, in and sci-fi were... and action movies, things to push back against. And that's why I think it's great that this is two movies in a row where the main character yeah. is a woman. And uh-huh. it's not like in the movie itself they're make, making a big deal about that. It's like a big deal on the internet, but it's not like, oh, look at you, you 
young woman lead <laughs> action person who's going to save us? Good for you, you know? It's just like, it just happens just to be like, the main character. It just is. Yeah. Though, wasn't there an issue with Ray toys also? Yeah. That there weren't yeah. enough Ray toys? Hashtag so I, where's Ray? Yeah. I heard yeah. the, the alternative side of this, uh, the alternative fact about... The, the toys, which was that they sold out, like they I sold out, it. like boom, yeah. boom, 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 yeah. and so then people were looking at the empty shelves and not seeing Ray toys, and they they made mm. it into the Where's Ray thing. Yeah. I've heard both sides of it. I mean, it was there. A there definitive... probably is a definitive answer that I don't have. I cannot say I reported on that definitive answer though. So. <laughs> you weren't uh, you weren't heavily engaged <laughs> in that that story, the controversy of Where's Ray. I saw that go by on Twitter and went okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, Scott, I kind of want to um, welcome you to the audience a little bit. We've, yeah. we've had the chance to talk with Tamara about her fandom at Link before. Mm-hmm. And just in, in the in the way of like a, a lightning round, I kind of wanted to get your favorite Star Wars, Star Wars this and that. And then okay. we'll kind of pivot back to some of the politics of Star Wars a little bit. Um, who's your favorite character? I think um, I think these days I would say, well, depends how, how narrow a scope. I think uh, Robot Chicken Emperor Palpatine is probably my favorite <laughs> Star Wars character across the board, but within the actual movies. <laughs> Um, I think Han Solo probably. Uh-huh. I mean, he he feels like the most um most layered character. He's like the most fun character. He's kind of ambivalent and then kind of grows as, as on you and on the cause as the movies go on. And and I like that about him. How do you deal with his death? Oh, I I feel like a masochist now. But I thought it was again going back to actual sacrifices and actual stakes, mm-hmm. and again uh, enjoying the parallels. Uh, throughout the movie cycles, I thought it was cool that they killed him off. It was I'm, definitely shocking. I, yeah, I did not see it coming, and I, I had avoided the spoilers. Uh, I also saw it pretty quickly. So I generally, I, I saw it coming when he went out on the bridge. I was like, okay, they're going to kill him. You know, this like, this is, this is the scene. This feels right in the plot. It feels like that's going to happen. Uh, they're but, on another damn catwalk. Yeah, as soon as they got into the catwalk, I was like, okay, Hansel is going to die. But, like, up until that point, I didn't see it coming. And, I mean, like, I was certainly, I was, like, really sad when it happened. Yeah. And it, I, I felt it. I but... remember I remember when he walked down the catwalk. That's when my hand found my brother's hand. <laughs> thing. I was like, we just, we just knew it. We just knew it was over. Yeah. Um, what's, but, your fav- what's your favorite movie? Uh, I think uh, Empire Strikes Back. Uh, I used to originally. I really like Return of the Jedi the most. But um, I think the last time I watched everything through, Empire Strikes Back kind of skipped ahead. It won back point. over. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah. What do you think changed between between that Return of the Jedi day and the Empire Day? I think um, I have a more sophisticated view of Ewoks. <laughs> I, think... I was, I was going to ask if it was the it was the Ewoks. Don't love the Ewok plot lines as much as I used to. I just I guess I thought um, I thought the. The whole like tropical moon setting was cool. I love mm-hmm. like the final third act when they're skipping between the Death Star and the space battle, and it's, and... The, it's the best twenty minutes of Star Wars. Yeah, I mean, just, <laughs> that's great. But um, I think just start to finish, uh, Empire Strikes Back is great, especially mm-hmm. and like I don't think uh, having come to Star Wars when it was a complete trilogy, I feel like you you don't fully appreciate, like, the risks taken of the ending of Empire Strikes Back. Like, everything has gone wrong. They're screwed. Your favorite characters lost a hand or are frozen. Nothing is going well for these guys. And I think, like, obviously everybody knew at that point there was going to be another sequel, I think. But yeah. still, like, it, it feels like a risky move to do that instead of having a happy ending. This question is for both of you. What is your favorite moment in Star Wars? Uh, we now have an episode seven. We now have a Rogue One. Do you have a moment that stands out to you as particularly impactful, meaningful? 
I can say one of several that jumps to mind right now. Yeah, I yeah. don't know if I would like fully commit to it, but I kind of like the whole Dagobah sequence where where Luke and Yoda are training. I feel like Yoda is also somebody who got kind of weaker as more movies were put out. And I didn't like like backflipping CGI Yoda, but like Empire Strikes Back Yoda, I really. And yeah, people really are always complaining about Jar Jar Ewoks, and I'm just going backflipping Yoda. Yeah. Know, like, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, just, yeah. That's Except too much. When it came out, I was like. Yoda's such a badass. This is amazing. <laughs> but I think I was just like desperately seeking something to salvage that movie. Yeah. Uh-huh. Fine. <laughs> work. Anything. Anything. I'm going to glom onto something. I feel like my answer has to be something Leia related, but I can't. I mean, it can be anything. I know, but. <laughs> it has to be Leia related. It has to be Leia related. Now, now one of the best and... Leia moments is we have hope at the end of Rogue One. <laughs> hope. That was so good. That's like the best thing, even though I wasn't caring for sure. Yeah. I, I went back and watched the whole kind of like rescue scene with her after after she died and, and really enjoyed that, where she's just like not impressed with them at all. Yes. She's like, all right, guys, let, let me help here. <laughs> I did. I do love that. I've, I've watched I've watched New Hope a couple of times recently. Uh-huh. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I I with my kid and I've just I we we've enjoyed it. And and I do just love how she's like, I will not be your damsel in distress. Some rescue. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, thanks. Yeah. yeah. Here we go, guys. They royally screwed up during the rescue. <laughs> Scott, favorite Star Wars song. What is a oh. song that always gets you in the soundtrack? Probably just like the opening, just like the opening, I feel like it's the, yeah. you know, more than, more than anything else. Cause I just feel like, like you're all, you're like Pavlovianly like, uh, triggered by like, like the shimmery Lucasfilm and then like the blue writing and then the, the like the and burst. And then you of... didn't get it this time with Rogue yeah, One. I was okay with that. But... Were you prepared for that? Yeah, I knew that was coming, but I had to, I had, I had to check like right before I was like, wait, seriously, it's really not there. Yeah, that was it. <laughs> I mean, but you still had like the pan down ship thing going on a little bit, or like at least enough of a nod to it. I feel like, right? Yeah, or I, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it just kind of started with bottom. Yeah, dun, 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 I was okay dun, dun, with that. Yeah, it was a good way to start a movie. Yeah. Well, it was a different, it was a very different Star Wars movie. Like, that is clear. It, it was, I actually think this would have benefited from a crawl, because as we were talking about earlier, there were so many details sort of shoehorned in there, and yeah. I think the audience generally would have benefited from that background. You know, there's a novel that came out right before it called Catalyst. If mm-hmm. you guys have time, I highly recommend it. <laughs> but even so, not everyone has the time to, you know, look at that. So I think yeah. it would have benefited from a crawl. Um, I want to go back to uh, talking a little bit about the prequels and a piece that you guys wrote in the run-up to The Force Awakens, Why the Politics of Star Wars Make No Sense. Of all the serious news we've done, that is one of our (laughs) most highly trafficked pieces. Yes. (laughs) That's what happens. It's a great piece, and it has really spot-on analysis and great humor. So, in a nutshell, I guess, why do the politics of Star Wars make no sense, especially now with uh, The Force Awakens and Rogue One being added to the canon? Has that affected your view of galactic politics at all well i feel like uh i feel like a force awakens kind of saves the prequels a little bit because that feels like even stranger like why why did some sort of galactic government let this really terrible group form why is there like a reason why is somebody else taking care of that problem for them like how do all these pieces connect who is governing what and why doesn't, like, the main government have its own army to fight them? Like, what is happening? You mean by making it worse? By muddling it even more? Yeah. That felt <laughs> it, even it makes, it makes the prequels yeah. seem like, oh, maybe... They... 
And what, what did you guys us. do after you defeated the emperor? Like, did did everything just like scatter off into you know like, what happened? You know, I think right. you, you say you say like, <laughs> how did this great you know galactic government let this thing over here form? And I just go like. We have this argument in, in our world all the time. Yeah, that's like, true. Yeah, like, I, we're, we're having that argument right now. I feel like something may have happened in Iraq where... <laughs> <laughs> How did you let this happen? No, but I mean, it seems like I was confused. I, I wanted more backstory as to what what the hell was going on with, with right. their current government oh, it's, structure. It's horrific. I mean, it really... I, I, I sometimes get really animated about the First Order in, in a way I don't mean to sometimes because, like... They're not the Empire, but they've got all the Empire stuff. Right. They're and... not some rebellion kind of taking guerrilla runs. They've got giant, you know, warships. They've got a whole planet killer. Like, you should have you should have stepped up, government. Like, come on. It's, but... it's, it's a little bit bizarre. And, I mean, that's why. And yeah. I guess Leia's part of the resistance. Yeah. We, we are not sure if she is. Hux says that she is like an arm of the Republic and that the, the resistance is being used by the Republic to fight them. But, but why would a republic would, have a resistance? Yeah, but she would tell you that like she had to go rogue because the republic wouldn't do anything. Yeah. It doesn't doesn't make much sense. So I agree overall that there definitely should have been more backstory, maybe a couple of lines of dialogue at the start of the film or maybe another line in the crawl, but I could interpret that as being, you know, Scott, you said that it sort of redeemed the prequels mm -hmm. for you in terms of uh, giving that explanation. But when we observe the trajectory of the prequels, it's about the government going after this, uh, you know, separatist movement, this uh, sort of force that's been building up. And yeah. then they we see what happens after that, you know. Uh, increasingly centralized power this yeah. dictator rising up and um obviously uh you know the audience shouldn't you know have to make too many connections but i could see that parallel of uh or that extrapolation of they didn't want to go down the same path and build up another army centralized power too much in the new republic yeah. and risk that again i think that's a good point and i mean i think the one thing for for their weird Senate and why do they elect queens and appoint senators? <laughs> and, um, I mean, I think uh, I think the prequels do do a good job of telling that story, uh, which you know, depending on your political viewpoint right now, you might be thinking a lot about um, is kind of moments in history where where people do say, you know, what I do want more authoritarian power in a centralized way. I want things to get done faster. I want to feel safer. And here are the trade offs I'm happy to make. You know, I think that that. That is something that it hasn't happened in America, but it's happened in a lot of countries at a lot of different points in history. And I feel like it's a familiar story, even if, if we, we don't think about it that way. And I feel like those big picture marks get hit well in the prequels, even if even if a lot of it is a mess. Yeah, like the detail. Part yeah, yeah, like the detail. I do love the fact that E.T. is in the Senate, though. E.T. E would be my favorite senator. I love, totally. I love that. that. That's one of the greatest. I caught that when it time. happened, and I was like, oh! <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's impressive. You have quite an eye if you caught E.T. in the entire Galactic Senate. That big, close. big E.T. fan. So this transitions well into our next question. Let's take a step back from that and think about what was George Lucas trying to convey through the prequels, through the original trilogy? You know, what did you guys take from it growing up about mm -hmm. the political message or during the prequels and now Force Awakens? Or, or sorry, not Force Awakens. He was involved in that. <laughs> but still, generally, uh, what is... sadness. <laughs> what was George Lucas trying to convey? He got $4 billion. He is not sad. <laughs> I mean, th this was like in the post-Nixon era. This was post-Vietnam. You know, there... 
I don't know what his intent. It's possible he was just trying to make a fun movie. Mm. Um, no. 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 That's too simple. I think it's powerful because it's so universal and basic. The fact that, you know, like, you can I, I think. onto it. Yeah. And when when I started learning about, like, Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey when I got, like, you know, into, into college and, and kind of learned more about that, uh, I feel like that just kind of deepened my, my, uh, love for Star Wars because I feel like the fact that it's the kind of basic myth story, basic religion story, basic, you know, hero cycle that that in 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 so many so many popular books or films or things that stick with us kind of have those same big points. The fact that Star Wars gets on top of that, I feel like, is what, what what makes it stick. And and like, yeah, there are political messages in it, but like, they're political messages that like most of us can get behind. Like, you should be nice to your friends. Yeah. You know, you should not be a hateful person. <laughs> you shouldn't like wantonly grab power. You know, like, uh, well, like, don't let the anger take you over. Yeah, like, but I mean, that's not even a political message. Yeah. That's just you know. Hey, no, <laughs> isn't we it? Talk, we talk about you know the the fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, hate leads to suffering in the context of politics all the time. Yeah. Um, you know, that's that's how if, when we are afraid of each other, we move to being you know fearful of each other. Then we hate those people and then people get hurt. That's that's yeah. that's the course of things. That's politics, too. Yeah, I guess so. Sounds You're right. Like, You're so, right. Everything's political. Yeah. Everything is political, guys. That's the <laughs> message of this show each and every yeah. day. Um, in the age of Disney, what do you think Disney brings to the table with politics of Star Wars that maybe George Lucas did not or could not? I wonder if they'll vet the script a little more and kind of, especially as the next few movies get written, I wonder if they'll be like, uh, I don't know if we want to go there. Or like, uh, that's a little too on point. I mean, I, I that that's what my guess would be. But I mean, yeah. the first two movies sense. from the new era have been kind of emotionally powerful movies that didn't feel, they didn't feel like, like the coloring by the numbers, uh, whatever movie just to just to make the box office revenue that I was worried there would be. So, mm. I don't know. Maybe maybe they'll keep that up, but I worry that more the checks. more the worry I worry that the more movies they kick out. I guess my my thought is less political and more that if they're going to continue to churn out one movie a year, like at, at some point the quality is going to have to suffer and at some point you can't think of Star Wars as like 15 movies, you know. Right. Yeah. Or maybe it's just like Star Trek and you pick and choose which ones you decide to acknowledge in your brain. There's going to be a lot to choose from. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna get to that point. I'm I'm already afraid <laughs> yeah. of the day. Yeah. Well, and now there's going to be like a Disneyland, Star Wars land in Disneyland, which is a weird thing to think about in itself. I mean, like the last time I was at Disneyland, there were stormtroopers walking around. Yeah. You know, the funny thing is, I was actually a little scared of the stormtroopers. <laughs> really? <laughs> I'm an adult, and I was just like, they seem like. They're, they're big and they're loud and were you there at the White House the day that Obama came out the stormtroopers came out in the press briefing no I missed that it was I was Josh very Ernest, sad that was that was a, a good like, moment this is a bad message guys like they're not good <laughs> yeah and, and then they brought them they went a step further and they came to the Easter egg roll yeah like the no stormtroopers of <laughs> the Easter egg Easter egg roll is a frightening thing <laughs> well if you're a small child because there are so many large characters but. I, so I I don't I'm like I am excited about the idea of Star Wars in Disneyland, um, but there is a disconnect because Star Wars has a darkness to it that Disneyland doesn't have. Disneyland is like the trash doesn't touch the ground because there's someone very happy picking it up. Yeah. Um, and and it's, you, know, you never went on Mr. Toad's Wild Ride as a little kid if you don't think there's scariness in Disney World. Horrifying. I, 
I did Mis- go Mr. on Mr. Toad is not committed ride. a genocide. Yes. <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> that's that's what's so weird about yeah. Star Wars. Like, how do you think we got to this point where, you know, stormtroopers are walking the streets of Disney World and like these people like the movies well, start with them abusing and murdering people in The Force Awakens, yeah. and we're like, oh, I want a picture with them. I did read and approve of some takes on the internet uh, that, like, Darth Vader being just kind of, like, a terrible, mean character again, yeah. like, in, in Rogue One, like, not not showing any subtlety and just him, you know, choking and killing and yeah. back to tanking was, was kind of a good step back. Did you like that? I like that. Yeah, it, it was might have been needed. We all needed to forget the castle was cool to see after you know, kind of knowing about how it was almost an Empire Strike Back. It was it was cool to see it show up. Though I feel like that it's so a cool. weird mental unpacking to put it on Mustafar. Like why? Yeah. Why, why would you do that? Well, I think uh, I think the answer to that question might be. And this is just a might. Like that is where he was born. Darth Vader yeah. was born on mm. Mustafar. He died there. He choked out his last love there. Uh, like that's where everything is for him. So I think he goes there because if you're you're in the dark side, you feed off pain, mm. you feed off yeah. your own suffering. He goes there to put himself through that ringer, and he gets more powerful as a Sith. Better than that. Um, better than that. Giant bug firefly planet from the uh, where they attacked Obi Wan Kenobi at, at the uh... Geonosis. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I hated that well, I, I have good news for you. The Empire gassed the entire planet and killed them all. Great. <laughs> so they're gone. You know, no big, no big deal. So what, one thing that I think Scott, you're the one that said this to me at some point. But the thing about Rogue One is that it it actually closes a loop in a way that makes the prequels all the more disappointing. Yeah, for sure. Really? For sure. Because I feel like everything I wanted from the prequels, I got in Rogue One. Right. So, like, delayed gratification. Great. Um, it, it, you only uh, had to wait, like, 15 years? How long has it been since the last prequel? Uh, 10 or 11, 12 years. Yeah, it, you it, only had to yeah. wait 12 years. It fills out a gap in the storyline that you knew was a gap that you didn't think too much about. It adds context to the original movies that you already appreciated. It has its own powerful storyline, and then it kind of like passes the baton right to when you first join the action in a way that I really liked. And I feel like that's what I thought, that's what I wanted, not like, here's Darth Vader as a six-year-old, you know. <laughs> like, Isn't he cute? Though, the podcast racing, I had the podcast, uh, podcast. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Podcasting is now the primary pod. Sebulba has a great I show. I don't know if you've ever listened to it. Um, <laughs> I had a great computer game of pod racing that that was really cool. Nice, but I, that's a very interesting point. It's as though the prequels um, set up the overarching uh, galactic conflict yeah. in terms of concept, but there's still that disconnect of hey, why does this happen in episode four? Uh, why is the Death Star, why does it have this one flaw? Uh, and Rogue One, as you say, it perfectly fills those gaps. Mm-hmm. I, I think that that really speaks to what you were, y'all were both saying earlier about in the Disney era, what's going to be different is there's going to be more checks. There's going to be more focus groups. There's yeah. going to be more people working on this movie. And if you if you understand the basic narrative of the prequels, like this was George Lucas's pet project, production directed, righted, uh, wrote, and the original movies, there was other people working on it. There was conflict, and it got a great product. And the prequels, they didn't really have that conflict. I have deep thoughts about this because I feel like in your in your personal life, 
or in your grand, like, I'm a creative wizard life, you need people in your life to mm. tell you no, to say, that's a bad idea, to say, you're being a jerk, that's lame, you need to make that edit, and I feel like whether it's George Lucas or whether it's J.K. Rowling or whether it's any artist who has a breakout hit and gets more and more successful, I feel like the quality deludes the more powerful they get because no one in their life is saying, George Lucas, your idea sucks. Because uh -huh. he's like, I'm George Lucas and we're on my giant ranch and I employ you. So, like, how dare you tell me my idea sucks? Because, like, I just feel like you need an editor in your life. Yes. And yes. The, and the thing about some of the best Star Wars films, Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi, they had different screenwriters, they had different directors, yeah. they had different producers. Episode four was uh, almost entirely George Lucas directing, screenwriting, but that was still an amazing uh, masterpiece in and of itself. But as you say, Scott, as time went on, yeah. I think it definitely would have benefited if he had less yes men around him and people telling him, hey, maybe this won't be so palatable to the audience, maybe we should improve the dialogue a bit here, and so on. There's yeah. like, like obviously George Lucas has ingenious ideas and comes up with with things. We have not created a universe and made billions of dollars off of that, unless you have and you're being really low key about it, which good for you. But um, you know, I feel like you get things in the right direction and you need to collaborate to kind of refine it. Um, there's this one thing. There's this document online that that I love of uh, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg and a couple other people brainstorming for Indiana Jones. Have you seen this? I, I haven't. Hmm. But it's, no. it's just a transcript of it's it's those two and a couple other people and they're all just kicking around ideas and like over and over again George Lucas like suggests something terrible and Steven Spielberg like politely pushes him back on track like oh what about this instead and he's like oh that's great and then like Steven redirect, Spielberg just redirect, redirects redirect. him over and over again, and they get to like um, the good product. Yeah, oh, that's yeah. I've never seen that video. It's, that is that great. is a must see. It's um, it's like a it's like a fifty page document or something. Uh -huh. Somebody uh -huh. like typed up the notes from their conversation. Wow, and I love it. Wow. Well, we know what happened with uh, the last Indiana Jones movie. Yeah, Crystal Lucas Skull, <laughs> Aliens. Um, we're we're kind of rounding up uh, rounding yeah. up here. I want to make sure we're being respectful of y'all's time. Um, we've got two listener emails I wanted to kick y'all's way. Oh wow! Um, to answer, okay. we've got we've got our own listener email segment <laughs> and also our uh, um, uh, Bantha fodder segment, which is uh, you know pretty much the can't let it go. Okay. Of uh, <laughs> Beltway Banthas. That's awesome. But uh, we've got a, an email here from Mike Chapman, and he said, "Can each of you make the case for both Star Wars as an inherently progressive masterpiece?" And an obviously conservatarian one. Ooh. So maybe oh you can split it up. One of you can make the conservatarian argument. One of you make the progressive argument. And go. <laughs> <laughs> Conservative, limited government. You know, yes. the, uh, <laughs> you can have uh, too much government power is a bad thing. Uh, a decentralized form of government is. But then... See, now I'm going back and forth in my mind. I'm but <laughs> I'm going to like the initial trade federation blockade uh, government screw up. You know? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think basically the conservative argument would be uh, too much government power is a very bad thing. That's a good one. Yeah. It works. Okay, so now I have to do the... Why is Star yeah. Wars part of a progressive utopian worldview? <laughs> I mean, there, there's the whole, um, just the whole Jedi philosophy would 
arguably be a more leftist philosophy. I was thinking that, like, I guess you could think that Star Wars also makes a, a case that having no moral qualms about kind of like a slave-based labor system with the droids, I guess, yes. you know, if, if our droids are going to have personalities and be lovable characters, should we be concerned that they're basically like slave laborers? Yeah, I, I don't keep, know. I keep hearing this uh, this argument in the context of like Rogue One and Star Wars and the Trump era being really loving of the rebellion and like yeah. how we should look at the rebellion as part of the resistance movement that you know, yeah. parallels today. But then we still have the problem of slavery of droids, and that yeah. is still going on in the rebellion. So they can be as multicultural as they want. They're still but enslaving I, a sentient being. I've also <laughs> seen the argument that the resistance is actually the 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 Trumpian. That that the resistance is the Trump people, and that that uh-huh. actually um, that that you know Leia and crew are are the bad guys. Well, I think that is a good. I mean, if you take politics totally out of it, right? <laughs> Just like strip out political viewpoints, and um, I. I Tamara was with the Clinton campaign, and I ended up with the Trump campaign a lot uh, mm-hmm. toward the toward the end of the election. And are you okay? I'm doing okay. Yeah. Um, I thought that like you don't sleep... ask me how. <laughs> I mean... But okay, I forgot you you were, you were on the on the Clinton. I wagon, was on so the Clinton like, plane. Couldn't get any access. The Trump campaign <laughs> it's just flying everywhere, not getting anything. The Trump campaign blew up the Death Star. Like, there's no question about yes. it. The, the the Hillary Clinton campaign was the Death Star. Massive, multi-floor. Establishment in Brooklyn, sure. you know, very, very corporately run, enormous, too big to fail. There's no way that, you know, look at all this data analytics we're running. Look at this. Look at all of our field offices. Trump campaign was like 10 guys in a room for most of the year. Like it really was being run out of like two offices, making on the fly decisions, zigzagging around. They were the rebellion. Yeah. And yeah. they, uh, they hit the exhaust port just right and won states that nobody ever thought they'd win. So I feel like if you're looking for uh, who is the rebellion and who is the empire here, just in terms of organizational structure, I feel like that that fits better than the other way. Everybody loves being the underdog. Right. The underdog did it this time. <laughs> Fascinating perspective. Yeah. It kind of just goes back to the money and politics question. Like, you know, Star Wars is, is against money and politics in general. Yeah. The Trump campaign itself was a, a statement against money and politics and it's it's uh it's power and its purpose. But uh, they did raise a lot of money in the end. They did raise they a lot of money. About it, but, they did you know, raise they a lot of money. Raised... Uh, they got it here. And they had they had a lot of money. They just didn't have, you know, Death Star building levels of money. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Nor did they want to build a Death Star. They wanted to be agile. Yeah. Like a you know, like a X Wing. Yeah, they had like their X Wing with big T on the back and they kinda, you know. That's all I mean. You know, the question of, of the Death Star building money, actually, <laughs> we were mentioning the, Geonos- the Geonosians earlier with, uh, you know, the Empire gassed the entire planet. Well, that was after they had them build the Death Star. Right. And I don't know if they were paid for that labor. Oh, like, not at all. Like, what? Well, you know, <laughs> so it goes maybe, back to how it was maybe funded. Maybe they didn't build it the way, you know, it wasn't perfectly up to code. <laughs> and, you know, if didn't approve. Oh, man. All right. If, if the prequels end with looking out at the basic bare bones frame of the Death Star being put together. Why did it remain a secret for so long? Why Why is it not until Rogue One they're like, oh my God, there's a Death Star coming. Like, I guess it's a big universe. So I, I th- I'd say big universe. That yeah. And the reason it took so long was because they were trying to get the weapon itself, like the yeah. planet um, destroyer part of it, uh, up to date. And that's why they need Galen Erso at the beginning of the film. Again, all these like small details that general audiences don't really know. 
yeah. at all. No, I, I think the timeline got a little wonky with episode yeah. three yeah. has the frame of the Death Star, and then we get, jump to Rogue One, and we've got a Death Star, and you just kind of like... I don't really know how the and what's been nineteen twenty years yeah nineteen twenty yeah. years and you know they yeah, trucked along years. in the building but I feel like there's an answer to the question of how they kept it secret. So moving on to Mark Bryant's question, um, do you see many, if any, parallels in the Star Wars political themes in today's political realities? We kind of touched upon that in the first question, but do you guys see any others? Um, well, since I just made the case for Donald Trump is the rebellion, I feel like, uh, I think we've covered that. Yeah. I feel like the flip side is just as much of an argument from people who, who do not like Donald Trump, who see, uh, who think that Congress is ceding, Republicans in Congress are ceding legislative authority and are happy to have, um, you know, I think lots of, lots of people who, who dislike the Trump administration are happy to kind of slap authoritarian themes on them and kind of, I mean, when we saw Beyonce is pregnant, like the amount of people tweeted us like, oh, look, the queen has twins now to fight the emperor who just seized power. I mean. It was remarkable how quickly that popped yeah. up. Dozens of people tweeted that us. We're like, okay. All right. Um, thank you for sharing. Yeah, I guess you can. It, Star Wars works because you can always frame yourself as the good guy in the Star Wars universe as to whatever's happening well, around Well, because you. this, who is the good guy is, is you know, a little bit up for interpretation. I mean, there, there was that whole argument that, um, who was it that Sunny, we talked to? Sonny Bunch was like, Empire's the good guy. Yeah, no, 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 no but that... It was a Seth Maskett who was yeah, saying Seth that Maskett. the Jedi are oh, this, yeah. like, Taliban-like yeah, religious group that, yeah... Yeah, and it's an argument that I think actually children. has some credence. It totally does. Absolutely. Yeah. Seth came on the show after uh, shortly after Tamara did, actually, okay. and told us a little bit about that. Uh, he that actually argument. fleshed that out for you. <laughs> fleshed that out a little bit. It's, it's a heavy-hitting argument, I got to say. I think that's what Star Wars is always doing and what we're always doing in the real world. Uh, real world here is we always just don't know who the good guys are. Right. We, and, don't, we yeah. don't know who the good guys are anymore. That's a problem we always have. And I think that when I was younger, before I started like professionally working in politics, I was always, you know, oh my God, George Bush is like whatever, you know, when I was in high school or something yeah. like that. But I feel like Star Wars is very black and white, and I feel like real world politics is not that black and white in most cases. It's very, it's very ambiguous and very, you know, complex in terms of who has what motivations and who works with and against who. So that's why I feel like it's hard to always you know, say this is just like Star Wars because of X. But I love that you can project yourself onto Star Wars. Yeah. That, I mean, and that's, that is like a sign of a really quality piece of art or whatever you want to call it. That, mm -hmm. yeah. that, you know, you can make the conservative argument for Star Wars and you can make the progressive argument for Star Wars, or you can just go sit there and lose yourself for two hours. And, and just enjoy a movie. And just enjoy a yeah. movie. And, and not think about politics, yeah, that's, maybe. That's why Star Wars is successful. <laughs> if it was too much of one thing or the other, everyone wouldn't love it. It wouldn't be selling like this over in Russia and China. Yeah. China. Uh, everywhere. <laughs> China. Um, it just wouldn't work. Layers um, upon layers. Yeah. Do y'all have five more minutes? I do. I do. Wanted to ask you. Um, we've got our, our final segment. It's called our Bantha Fodder segment. It is Can't Let It Go for Star Wars. Okay. Anything that's on your mind? Like, what have you been focused on this week? It can be Star Wars, politics. What's got, you, uh, what's got your, uh, your mind hooked? 
Well, so I've got one, which okay. is is small, but I went and saw the Lego Batman movie. Oh, so completely really not Star that, Wars related. But I don't have a kid. <laughs> it's okay. I was sitting next to like three dudes. Anymore. Yeah, I was sitting next to three guys who had no child with them, and they were just like, yeah, yeah. Like they were having so much fun next to yeah. me. It was unbelievable. <laughs> um, so I went and saw the Lego Batman movie. Um, in short, it is a two-hour movie about emotional availability and attachment issues, which is kind of remarkable. It also has, I mean, just the animation is it's amazing. It's just about Legos, Tam. Yeah, I know, I know. There's more to it. Um, you know, that you can't do it on your own, that you need people around you, you need a family, you need to, you need to allow yourself to be vulnerable and allow yourself to attach to others. These are all things Batman has a hard time with. Sounds like exactly, a, but yeah. Batman was learning. Okay, Batman okay. doesn't learn as much in the other Batman movies. Well, he, he didn't. <laughs> he he was struggling with the learning in this one too, in yeah. hilarious ways. But none of that is what I'm getting at. <laughs> Closing credits go up. You see a couple of names, and then big, bold, in the bottom left of the screen, executive producer Stephen Mnuchin. What? Oh, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Who is the executive producer of many films yes. and is, by the time this podcast posts, going to be the next Treasury Secretary of the United States of America. Oh, my God. <laughs> and I was like, I'm like what? sitting there, I'm like, Stephen Mnuchin, Stephen Mnuchin. Oh, my gosh, oh that's God. the Treasury Secretary. And my parents were there with me, so I like shout over my yeah. son. I'm like, hey. Next look. Treasury Secretary. And then the woman next to them looks at me with this knowing look like, well, we are in I Washington, D.C. seeing movies, aren't we? <laughs> you just couldn't get away from work. <laughs> nope. Just wasn't happening. So that's what I can't let go or whatever. Was I, it as I, good I mean, as the original the Lego movie? It was different. Yeah. Um, but it was hilarious. Okay. Uh, it was not, you know, the original Lego movie was you know, this one was a little dark. It was Batman. Yeah. Well, I like Batman almost as much as I like Star Wars, so I really want to see that movie, too. One other thing about it that's just really fun is that there are nods to all of the other previous incarnations of oh, Batman. Nice. In just... And, and I, like, I, I at one point went to this art house in L.A. and saw the original pow-bam Batman movie on the big screen. So the, to have allusions to that in this one was pretty awesome. That, that takes me back to my childhood. I remember um, the Mel Brooks Batman movie and I didn't know it was a comedy. <laughs> I, I thought it was Batman, Batman. And then uh, I rewatched it when I was like a teenager yeah. and went, wait, uh. <laughs> this was supposed to be stupid. Yeah. <laughs> Scott, what's your Bantha Potter this week? Well, just, just I mean, I don't want to extend this conversation for a long time, but you, I, yes, feel like, I feel like, I feel like, extrapolating politics or explaining politics through Star Wars, you can do just as much through just the Dark Knight itself. Like, in all... in all, Especially when it came out. Like, there were so many George Bush's Batman. No, George Bush is the Joker. No, like, you know... What? This was a thing? Oh, this was a thing. George yeah. Bush the Joker. Because it came out in 2008. At, like, peak, people had thoughts on... Well, less George, but more. I heard a lot of George Bush's Batman and just kind of temporarily seizing extrajudicial power, <laughs> yeah, but only that's... doing it to keep people safe and knowing that, you know. What? I mean, that's... was the cell phones and the mass surveillance Batman was doing at yeah. the end? Yeah. 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 Maybe we can have a sidebar Dark Knight politics podcast that, here. That man. would be great. Um, <laughs> what, a, what a day it was when George Bush was the Joker of Batman. <laughs> oh, we've come a long way. Um. <laughs> 
I don't know if that one holds up as well, but George Bush's Batman was definitely one I remember reading about. Uh, so what can... Okay. Well, that was... We keep not, we keep calling it Can't Let It Go. We just can't let go. Of... You heard it here, uh, folks, that the, uh, the Trump team is the re- rebellion and <laughs> Batman is George Bush. You can't let Hot go of takes. the fodder. <laughs> um... These, by the way, are not declarative things by me. Just theories I'm walking through. These just sharing. <laughs> just stuff that's out there. I read it on Twitter. NPR dash. <laughs> um, oh, what can I not like? So, what have I seen? Okay. Um, I feel like as politics and news cycles have become more and more aggressive and just like unceasing, I've been really trying to like check out with like things I watch and read to things that are as far from politics as possible. Um, so I've been reading some, like, spy novels lately, and, uh, The Night Manager, it was on AME, AMC a couple months ago, and I never saw it, but it's on Amazon now, and I've, um, been making my way through it the last few days, and it's just, uh, it's a six-part series based on the John le Carre book, and it's just really good. Nice. This is kind of like I've started watching Cheers from the very first episode, because... You can really zone out to that. Yeah. I have some (laughs) friends who've been making their way through Frasier for the same thing. Yeah. What? I... It's on Netflix, uh, and sometimes you just need to not think about anything. Well, I think my yeah. the fodder is right up that alley as well. Um, this Is Us is the show that America needs right now. Uh, it is about family. It is about um, you know tradition and how things are handed down. You know, you've got this amazing mystery in this show of This Is Us of you know you know whether or not the it jumps between the parents. When they were having the babies, and then it jumps between those grown-up babies and, and their grown-up life. And it's it's an amazing show. If you are not watching This Is Us, um, you will laugh, you will cry, uh, you'll be mad. It's everything we need in television and entertainment right now. It's I have not so seen perfect. it yet, but I really want to. Yeah, it's it's well worth your time. It's it's amazing because they, they time hop between the parents mm-hmm. as young and the, and the kids as grown and you you don't know certain things about how everybody got to where they are. Uh-huh. Like it's season two right now, and you still don't know if the parents, like how the parents ended up apart. You know, it's it's huh. you just don't know based on the context of what they show you. Yeah. So we're still waiting for like something horrible to happen, and it's it's a family story. You wouldn't expect that. Um, but this is us. My wife got me hooked, and uh, you should be hooked too. Wow, Suara. So for my Bantha fodder, I'm sort of going away from the recurring theme here of trying to get away from politics. (laughs) Uh, I'm quite the political addict and, you know, since way before the election and during and after. And uh, I've been having a sort of series of ongoing conversations with my roommate, who's also super into politics. We've both been working on democratic politics since we were in college. And... um, and when we went to college together, and we worked on campaigns, we campaigned for President Obama in 2012. Um, and I've been, since the election, focusing too much on what the Trump administration has been up to and um, sort of forgetting the fact that I'm in Virginia, like, there's local politics going on right now. It's important to pay attention to the governor's race, to state legislatures, to uh, county elections, and... My roommate uh, has been really encouraging me to focus less on the national uh, going on, going ons of the day, even though I still keep up to date. It's important, especially mm-hmm. with your guys' work, which has been exceptional as always. And, oh, thank you. <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> um, and 
I found, you know, we've been going to uh, Democratic town halls. We've been uh, networking with uh, people in Arlington, Young Democrats. And I found it to be quite relieving compared to just scrolling through Twitter or uh, through news sites, you know, or listening to political podcasts I do. You know, usually, you know, I still need to stay informed, but that's not the only way I should stay informed. And when we're talking about these more granular details of local politics, I feel as though I'm making a practical impact and a practical contribution to our general political system, because it really is. And we've been talking about this for a while now. All politics is local. Uh, You need to pay attention to your state. Uh, your county races, your city halls, and realize that what's going on at the top level obviously is important, but you should also be focusing on, again, the thing you can have a direct impact on. You'll honestly, as I have, I believe, feel better and more relieved comparatively than just looking at CNN headlines every day and thinking the world is going to end. Yeah, and well, Tam and I both started, uh, we're both state house reporters, uh, too, and I feel like, you know, I, I I think you're right, and I feel like the other thing about local politics, first of all, it affects your life yeah. much more. And two, because fewer people are involved, and because fewer people decide it, whether it's in the state legislature or whether it's in a state house race, you know, you can have a lot more power with your actions working on that level. You know, whatever your politics are, you can you can see what you're trying to get done, get done faster and more effectively on the local level because because there are just that many fewer people doing stuff. So the more work you do, the farther it goes. That's, I had been emailing or Facebook messaging with a Bernie supporter who got very disillusioned and was yelling at me on Facebook, and then I continued the conversation for reasons I whatever. You sometimes have the patience of a Jedi. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sometimes. And and uh, he was like, I don't know what I'm going to do with myself. Like I've been so focused on this national race, and I've been, you know, and and now Bernie's out, and I don't know what to do. And I was like, do local politics. Like right. what well, one. R- reacquaint yourself with your children to get into local politics, pay attention to the school board, like do things that will affect your life on a daily basis. Um, I I feel like there's such a fixation with national politics, probably because it's less complicated and, and more sexy or something. But in the end, the local politics are, are where things that, yeah, affect you day to day actually happen. Well, if the resistance is going to become the Tea Party of the left going forward and not just end up being an Occupy Wall Street kind of in demonstration, there's going to have to be a commitment to the grassroots and commitment to uh, badgering the hell out of your local politicians. Um, yeah. That's part of it. That's the organization aspect. And that's what's got to happen if anybody wants uh, change from their, their point of view. And continuing to do that for months and years at a time as opposed years to just, you know, yeah. Absolutely. Few weeks. I think that's that's the big question to look for. Mm. Scott Detrow, Tamara Keith, thank you so much for joining Beltway Panthers today. It's been really, really nice talking to you both, and finally, nice to have you on, Scott. Yeah, Tam thanks again. for having. I was, I was, I enjoyed and was jealous of Tam's episode. All right. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode of Beltway Banthas and our little mashup with the NPR Politics Podcast. You can catch this show every other week. We are on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and we also live on RetroZap.com. You can find uh, new postings there, some blog writings by the, by the hosts and, and by friends of the show. 
We'd love if you could leave us a review on iTunes. That really means a whole lot, and it helps us get the show out to more people. You know, when you take the time to leave those stars, iTunes will recommend the show to more people, and it, it does make a huge difference for us. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I am at Stephen underscore Kent 89. That's Stephen with a P-H underscore K-E-N-T 89. You can find our other host, Swara Saleh, at Swara Saleh 1. That's S-W-A-R-A-S-A-L-I-H, number one. Uh, Tamara Keith and Scott Detter are also on Twitter, as is NPR Politics, at NPR Politics. And do subscribe to that podcast. It's a great source of information, and uh, you should be listening to it. So, folks, thank you so much for tuning in for this episode of Beltway Banthas. We'll be back the week after next with a great episode on the politics of the Empire and what it is like to be a fan of the Empire in the age of Trump. And with that, have a great week, and may the Force be with you. Laugh it up, fuzzball.